0: John, thank you, Joy, for reading. Well, good morning. Uh, Let's pray as we prepare to look at God's Word. Lord, we do pray that your Word may live in us. We pray that it may bear much fruit to your glory, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Um, I wonder if any of you recognize this vessel. This This is this vessel in 2011. It was a project on the long-running British, British program, Grand Designs. It was undertaken in 2007. And a few years ago, the host of Grand Designs, Kevin MacLeod, he was interviewed about his experiences on the show. And he says that he still has nightmares about this particular project. It was a boat, he said. It wasn't even a house. Now, this project was the dream of a man named Chris Miller and his wife, Susie Lou Lai. They lived in a small flat in London with their two kids and they bought a barge and their dream was to do it up as a houseboat and live on the Thames, the river that runs through London. But here was their big problem according to MacLeod. Quote, they had no drawings, no designers and they just made it up as they went along. And sure enough, as you can imagine, after a year and 80,000 pounds, they couldn't complete the project. It was unlivable. And so, it was abandoned, just left in its moorings on the Thames River. And over the the next three years, it was vandalized and squatters took up residence in it, until one night in 2011, when it broke free from its moorings, or it was broken free, no one really knows. And as you may have guessed, this is not the Thames River. This is a beach in Essex, some 50 kilometers from where it began. And resting as it does, unfinished, unlivable, on a beach in Essex, it stands as, as a summation of a disastrous do-it-yourself attempt. It speaks to that whole enterprise as a complete failure, and particularly a failure not to seek the right counsel, the right advice when it was needed. No designers, no drawings, they just made it up, As they went along and I think when we hear a DIY disaster story like that it it resonates with us probably for a couple of reasons we may not have had a DIY disaster on quite that level but I dare say we've all had some sort of similar experience but I also think it resonates with us because because what we recognize that, that that DIY impulse runs through most facets of our lives We like doing things ourselves, we don't like relying on others. Indeed our whole cultural narrative is that we grow up for the most part so that we can arrive at the DIY point and then we can live our DIY adult life independently in all ways. And I think this is just as apparent when it comes to spiritual matters. We don't like being reliant on others, why would it be any different when it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to God? I think most of us sitting here, most of us here, would describe ourselves as Christian believers, and so we hear that and we think, well, that's not me, that's, that's non-Christians, right? And that's certainly true. When I think of my non-Christian friends and my non-Christian families, the spiritual narrative, if you will, of their lives is very much, I got this whether God's not in the picture at all or whether it's uh, trying to live the best life they can so morally they can impress God, it's very much a DIY spiritual existence. But what about Christian believers? What about you and me? After all, the Christian life is described in the Bible as one of maturing and if our cultural narrative of maturing is one of transitioning from dependence to independence, Are we not prone to this way of operating too, even as we become Christian believers, even as we grow in our faith? What are the pitfalls for us? Our passage this morning suggests that we are, that this has always been the case for God's people. Joshua 9 speaks both to believers and to non-believers about this very reality, about who God is, about how He works, about what it looks like to live lives of genuine trust in Him. So let's have a closer look at it. If you were with us last week, you'll notice that we've skipped over chapter 8. In that chapter, God, having turned from his anger against his people, against Israel, he delivers the city of Ai into their hands. Like Jericho, it's burned to the ground. There is a grisly addition to what they do. The slain king of Ai is hung up on a tree as a symbol of God's judgment and curse. And so we pick up the narrative here in chapter 9. And the chapter unfolds in four distinct scenes, which I've just kind of put down in that sermon outline for you. The first is very much a scene setter, the situation, verses 1 and 2. And we're told in verses 1 and 2 that when all the kings beyond the Jordan and along the coast heard of Israel's defeat of Ai, what did they do? They formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel a unified alliance, it it symbolizes the entrenched spiritual opposition across the board of the people of Canaan. Well, almost all the people of Canaan. It's not completely united. The second scene, we encounter this Gibeonite deception. See, the people of Gibeon, they decide upon an entirely different course of action. Instead of acting with hostility, we're told in verse 4, they acted deceptively. They put on this performance piece, Verses 4 and 5, you see there, they have worn-out sacks, torn wineskins, patched sandals and clothes, the dry and mouldy food. Reminds me a bit of the movie Catch Me If You Can. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that movie. It's based on the true story of a young man named Frank Abagnale Jr., who before his 19th birthday had successfully forged millions of dollars in checks while posing as a pilot, as a doctor, and as a legal prosecutor how did this teenager get away with it? Well, he looked the part. He looked the part. I, the pilot was his most impressive. He, he, he got the, 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 the Pan Am checks to look exactly the same. He managed to get the uniform. He learnt the jargon so that when he was playing the part of a pilot, he never actually got behind the controls of a plane. But they couldn't tell the difference and everyone bought it. He went to great lengths and his deception worked over and over again. And we see the Gibeonites going to these sorts of lengths. They present a look in order to achieve a deception. But why? What is their point? Verse 6 tells us. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the men of Israel, we have come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. They want to make a treaty with Israel. They want to form a covenant in particular, they go on to say that they want to be Israel's servants, their servant nation, basically. And these sorts of alliances weren't uncommon in the ancient Near East. They rightly suspect that there's this geographical limit to Israel's conquering. So they only have to commit, convince Israel that they, they live beyond where Israel wants to conquer. And then Israel should be able to make a covenant with them. And once they've done that, they're all good. And it's a good pitch. And still, Israel aren't so easily fooled. What do they go on to say in verse 7? The men of Israel replied to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. How can we make a treaty with you? They said to Joshua, we are your servants. Then Joshua asked them, who are you and where do you come from? It's good to see the Israelites doing this. They know they can't just go making treaties willy-nilly. They can't make a covenant with a nation that they're supposed to drive out. They have very specific instructions in terms of what God is doing here. That would be breaking their covenant with the Lord. A covenant we saw last week, they already broke when Achan sinned. And so a covenant that in chapter 8, they've had to renew before the Lord. And so they go into this interrogation. But the Gibeonites, they have all the answers, don't they? They flatter the Israelites by recounting back to them their great victories that they've heard of. You'll notice maybe that the victories they speak of are only the ones east of the Jordan that happened 40 years earlier. It's their way of saying, that's where we're from as well, a long way away. We don't know about any recent stuff we've done. And then they point to their great props that they've prepared. Clearly we've come a long way. Why why would our provisions look this way? Why would we be so worn out? It all looks right, but looks can be deceiving. And so they proved to be here. And by this stage, the men of Israel, they think they've done their due diligence, but they've overlooked one crucial step. Verse 14, very much the center of this narrative, isn't it? Then the men of Israel took some of their provision, but did not seek the Lord's counsel. They did not seek the Lord's counsel. What does that mean? We're not entirely sure what that seeking Of god's counsel would have looked like but the the narrator clearly makes this the centerpiece of his narrative and it's quite a condemning centerpiece the implication is clear israel really should have sought the lord's counsel and it's not like god hasn't been present among them acting powerfully it's not like god's been silent chapter one last week chapter seven that we looked at god has been communicating clearly and specifically with israel So what we see here is Israel's DIY moment in the midst of this campaign. This is a striking oversight. And this DIY moment, it's their first significant one. And unfortunately, it's going to be the first of of many. But they don't perceive that at the time. They don't see that that's what they're doing. As far as they're concerned, it's a win-win. They get this servant nation. So Joshua makes a covenant with them, we're told. The Gibeonites' request is granted. They're spared. They become Israel's servants, which leads us to the third scene and the predicament that Israelites find themselves in. Sure enough, only days later, they learn that the Gibeonites are not, in fact, from a faraway nation. Verse 16, three days after making the treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbours living among them. So the Israelites set out and reached the Gibeonite cities on the third day, but the Israelites did not attack them. Because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. They can't touch them. End of story. Why not? Because of the treaty. Because of the covenant they have made. Now I think reading this today, we, we might get a... Why is that such a big deal? After all, it was a covenant made on the basis of Deception. And swearing oaths and making covenants isn't really a thing for us, so we can easily gloss over this. The last real vestiges of that in our culture are maybe if you have to give legal testimony, you swear an oath to tell the truth. And probably, in terms of covenant-making, marriage is the last real vestige of that. When bride and the groom are swearing their vows, they're actually making a covenant. It's a solemn thing, and yet, we know in 21st century Western society just how seriously marriage covenants are kept. Covenants were certainly a much bigger deal in the ancient Near East. But in this instance, it's not so much the covenant itself, but how it's made. How is it made? Israel swears it by the Lord. They swear it by the Lord. Now, this is not inappropriate. This is appropriate. It's how God expects His people to make covenants. Because it, it rec- by swearing by God, recognizes His reality. It recognizes Israel's reliance on him and God's capacity to hold Israel to their word, to hold Israel to account. It's a good thing that they swear covenants by the Lord, they just have to swear the right covenants. And in this case, it places Israel in a bind. They're suddenly aware that whatever they do, they're going to let God down, which leads them to a solution, but a compromised one. On balance, we see the leaders decide to keep the covenant they've made with Gibeon, having just gone through a, a significantly tragic moment when they didn't keep the covenant and God's anger was against them. They decide to do that. And so in verses 22 and 23, we see that Joshua summons their leaders for a bit of a lecture, a bit of a dressing down. He pronounces them cursed, indefinite servants to Israel. He asks them, why did you deceive us? Now, of course, the answer seems quite obvious why they did what they did, but they give their reason nevertheless. And it is interesting what the Bible tells us they said, the reason they give, because it reveals a degree of insight that's lacking from the Israelite leaders, even from Joshua himself, at least in this instance. What does verse 24 say? The Gibeonites answered him, "...it was clearly communicated to your servants." that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. We greatly feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did it. It was because they knew with certainty that God had commanded Moses to give Israel the land. Didn't Israel know with certainty what God had commanded them to do? Well, yes, and no, at least doesn't seem to have translated into their actions here maybe you've heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt i think that's what we see here there is a familiarity bred contempt in the israelites trusting god on some level as we see here in joshua 9 they didn't really think they needed god's guidance they could do it themselves diy blessing and there are, there are three truths in particular that come out of this for us. And the first is that taking matters into our own hands so easily takes God out of the picture. It so easily does. It's interesting to note that God doesn't really feature in the passage. Have you noticed that? Not really as a, as a character. Particularly contrast that with the first chapter of Joshua, even last um, week. God is very present From the very way it's recounted here in Joshua 9, we're almost positioned as readers to forget about God's nearness, to forget that he should be consulted, to forget about his relevance. There will always be a temptation for human beings to act without reference to God. And it doesn't change when you become part of God's people. We are still affected by sin in a sinful world. And while the error of that may not always be obvious, it will nonetheless be an outworking of sin. As we saw last week, that's partly what sin is, isn't it? Editing God out of the picture. In this moment, Israel did that. Whether they were conscious, that's what they were doing at the time or not. And by the time they realised their mistake, it was too late. But of course, sitting here today, we think, well, what does that look like? What does it look like for us to seek counsel from the Lord? On the one hand, it's less straightforward than it was for the Israelites in terms of what should we be doing with our lives? God, how do you want us to, to act in this situation? Knowing God's will for the Israelites was quite straightforward here. They had a conquest. God had a program of judgment and blessing that he was enacting. And they, had, they knew that. They were, not, they were called to drive out the nations and establish the state of Israel. Now, we're not called to, to establish a Christian state and to take up arms in that way. In that sense, it's less straightforward. But on the other hand, it's more more straightforward, or at least more accessible, to understand what it looks like to seek God's counsel. See, we have the big picture of God's revelation. We have the big picture of God's will, of His actions. We have His Word revealed to us in its fullness, both in the Bible and in the Lord Jesus who has come. We know what God's will is, as it is the mission of our church. We know where we can go to find how it is that God wants us to live. He's revealed it to us in a word, not a word that is far away, that we have to go up to heaven to grab, but one that is very near us. And we have direct access to God in a way that was only privileged of Joshua and the anointed leaders of Israel at the time. We have the Holy Spirit when you put your faith in Jesus lives inside you directing us to God we have the great resource of prayer over the time the Israelites grew complacent in their walk with the Lord ultimately leading to them not walking with the Lord at all at least not in the promised land many centuries later and even at this early stage perhaps the Israelites had started to think that their success was as much down to them as it was to God that they didn't need to rely on God not totally what's your walk with the Lord like is it vital is it daily reliant or has it come a bit has it become a bit DIY trusting God for the obvious stuff or the or the really scary and unsettling stuff but everything else I'll handle that is that reflected in your reading of his word or in your prayer life is it sparse is it is it non-existent i know from experience how easy it is for it to become sparse for it to become non-existent and to go through motions of daily living and weeks and weeks can go by before i realize i'm not sure how much i've been relying on god i have gone through significant decision-making times in my life where i didn't think to pray at all you may recall mike's sermon in the summer renewal series if you were here in january On prayer, where he noted that a common obstacle to prayer is a sense that we don't need to pray. It's a tricky obstacle because it's subtle. In a way, it says, well, God's in control. That's why I don't need to pray. He'll do what He will do. But it's also subtle because like in Joshua 9, it's expressed passively in what we don't do rather than what we do do. And that's harder to pick up, I think, in what we don't do. Are we guilty of that? Or are we prone to that? Do we have tendencies that way? For example, four times a year we hold a prayer night here at church. We use it to kick off our discipleship groups and our teaching for the series for that term. The last prayer night had 16 people at it. The one before that, maybe 15. In a church of well over 200 members. Do the math, that's less than 10%. What does that say about our attitude towards prayer as this resource that God has given us? About our reliance on God on both a micro and a macro level, is it possible that an overwhelming majority of people here at Minchambury thinks that there is no need to pray? I don't think that's true. I really don't think that's true. But it finds expression in what we don't do. Now, this doesn't mean that every single decision that God's people make needs to be run by Him in prayer, but a non-DIY spiritual life will want to be in constant communion with God. And so if you have a matter and you wonder, should I pray about this? Just pray about it. Just pray about it. There's no such thing as too much prayer. As it says in James 1 verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously, and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. We all lack wisdom, ultimately. Pray, and God will let us know what it is he wants us to do. And so it is so easy to take God out of the picture when we take matters into our own hands. And yet, and yet, God will accomplish his sovereign purposes. He will. It's a wonderful, freeing reality. We see it expressed here in two ways. The first is that the Israelite conquest continues. God's solemn program of blessing and judgment, it's not interrupted by Israel's failure to consult him, that in itself is an act of mercy by God, but it's also the act of a God who is entirely sovereign, who's entirely in control of events. And so while he uses people to achieve his purposes, he doesn't need them. Whatever ministry you're involved in, what a wonderful thing that God uses us for those things. But he doesn't need us, and that is freeing. We don't have to think that just because I didn't pray, God can't work. And the second thing that we see unfolding here is that the Gibeonites were ultimately shown mercy and they were spared. I mean, does this mean that, that God had to compromise on his plan? Well, no. Because this event is a reminder that while God is bringing long awaited just judgment, mercy is always near at hand that's what the creator who loves the people he made that's how he acts much like Rahab before them the Gibeonites cast themselves on the mercy of God yes they do it in a humanly deceptive way but nonetheless they cast themselves on the mercy of God and they're spared and like the conquest of Canaan God's ultimate judgment at the end of time has been promised it's certain but mercy is near at hand And so Paul writes to the church in Rome and he encourages them to share the good news and to promote the sharing of the good news wider and wider and wider. Why? Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. They will be. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God will accomplish His purposes. And lastly, we see the cross. It's that ultimate example, isn't it, of... God's purposes through sinful actions God's divine just holy purposes ultimately glorious purposes being expressed through sinful actions Paul writing to the Corinthians says that the cross is foolishness to Gentiles to non-Jews who worships a man so easily thwarted such a weakling who gets himself killed he says that to the Jewish people it's a stumbling block who worships a man hung on a tree Like the king of Ai, that man is cursed. Indeed, Jesus was cursed, that is the whole terrible and glorious point of the cross. Jesus alone could simultaneously be under God's judgment of sin and be breaking the curse of sin. He alone could pay for our faithlessness by being utterly faithful. God has not acted without reference to us. That is why Jesus went to the cross. That's a wonderful, climactic truth that Joshua 9 points towards. And so as we go out from here today and continue to live our lives, we do so knowing that there is no such thing as a DIY salvation. What hope would there be for any of us if there were? And if you're sitting here this morning, you think, yeah, God is there, but I can do it on my own. I will be good enough, I will be faithful enough to whatever He, how He wants me to live, and He will be impressed with me at the end of time, at the end of my time. That's no such thing as a do-it-yourself salvation. Having placed your faith in Jesus, there's also no room for a DIY spiritual life, and that itself is a wonderful thing. We're not on our own. God has given himself for us. He has made himself available to us. The God of the universe who existed before time has made himself available to you and to me. And we know that Jesus is risen, that he reigns on high. The Bible speaks of him interceding for us on our behalf. So speak to him. Seek his counsel and his comfort. And be glad. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your work of grace in our lives. We do pray that you would help us to live lives that are constantly orientated towards you. That we might be reliant on you in all ways. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like. We pray for our family and friends who don't know you. By the witness of our lives, may you point them to Jesus and to the love, the mercy, the guidance and the hope that is found in him alone.